This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Miles Trapagan. He's the Borderlands Program Coordinator for the Wildlands Network. We've talked to Miles previously about the border wall, so we wanted to get an update. So that's what we'll be doing today. Welcome, Miles. It's good to be talking with you. Thank you, Jay. I really appreciate you having me. Okay. So the border is 1,950 miles long, and uh, uh, what was built since uh, – how much wall did Trump get built uh, while he was president? Uh, well, during the Trump administration, there was about 458 miles of border wall that were built. Uh-huh. And this uh, makes for a total of about uh, just shy of 800 miles of border wall that exists. But I, I think um, it requires a little bit further explanation because I think the media often gets certain things wrong. Uh, uh-huh. Of course, not your show, but uh, so <laughs> we're, we're, <laughs> we're talking about border wall here. On the topics of border walls, um, you often hear the term fencing or border barriers. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's there's a real distinction between what's been built and the different types. So border wall is fundamentally different than um, you know border barrier as uh-huh. a generic term. For example, there are vehicle barriers. And a lot of vehicle barriers are composed of surplus steel railroad lines that were put in um, Normandy barriers, like the jacks that you saw on um, Omaha Beach, you know, and, uh, to keep uh, you know landing craft from landing on the beach. The purpose of these was to deter vehicle traffic from driving across the border, and um, and in many areas they really did serve to protect the environment because places like Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument, Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge, they were getting a lot of drive-through traffic. Uh-huh. And so the resource was really being damaged. But uh, in most cases, a lot of wildlife can pass through those vehicle barriers. Um, it's not a problem for deer, mountain lion, uh-huh. you know, most animals to be able to pass through. Right. But when they switched over to the bollard fencing, which in the um, lingo of the Department of Homeland Security uh, was called replacement fencing, and um, this is what I was referring to where the media has really mischaracterized this, especially kind of on the more left-wing side. They'll say, oh, the Trump administration only built 16 miles of new border walls. Yeah. And that's simply not true. It's because when they switched from these vehicle barriers to a 30-foot bollard wall, that is just fundamentally different. Um, right. There's simply no comparison. So um, I, that's why I think it's really important to understand the difference between vehicle barriers, um, border barrier fence, and border wall. Oh, I see. Okay, so so there's more impermeable wall now that uh, stands. Is that right? There's a lot more, and yeah. um, and the majority of that was built in Arizona, California, and New Mexico. Oh. Um, Texas is kind of a, a different story due to a variety of reasons. Well, and, because of the river and land laws. Yeah, yeah the, yeah, the river has something to do with it, but there's there's some other elements of that as well that we can uh-huh. discuss. And where they built in Texas is on the U.S. side of the river? Yes, it's on the U.S. side, and um, like you, you mentioned, the Rio Grande River runs the entire border of Texas. Right. Um, 
and and it's a very sinewy river. You know, the Rio Grande is an old river, so therefore it gets a lot of big meanders, especially uh, when you're heading down towards the the delta in, the, in South Texas. And um, so, therefore, the border wall has been built in straight line segments across a lot of land in Texas, mm. including private land and protected areas like national wildlife refuges. Were those landowners compensated for where the wall was built? Well, you know, it's a condemnation action for eminent oh. domain. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, the most forceful thing that the government can do to the land. And surprisingly, in a, a state like Texas, where they're all about their private land laws, right. their own state government seemed to really didn't care what the federal government came in and did to the local landowners. Mm-hmm. So now a lot of people actually uh, have border wall behind them. And so they're be- between them and the river. So if you look at that, we're we're actually ceding land over to the other side by building these border walls. And this has happened in uh, many places in Texas. So uh, how many miles now have have been built along the Rio Grande? Well, they're in the process of beginning border wall construction in a place called Star County. And they have uh, 17 miles planned. And then the state is building some, and that was, of course, just announced a few weeks ago. Right, right. And uh, and that's been a really point of contention, a, a lot of disappointment from a lot of people who did not expect this to happen. Right. Yeah, I think the the Biden administration claims that they were forced they were forced mm-hmm. to do that because the money had been appropriated by Congress. That's a matter of controversy, I guess. So, yes, it is. So um, what here's the, what they didn't have to do is they did not have to apply the waiver of law to do this. Uh-huh. And so um, in 2005, there was a law passed um, called the Real ID Act, 2005. And in that, there's a provision that allows the Secretary of Homeland Security to waive virtually all laws for construction of border barriers. And this includes the Endangered Species Act, uh, NEPA, Native Graves, American Protection Act, Bald Eagles, I mean, you name it. You know, all historical and cultural preservation laws are waived as well so that they can expedite construction of these. You know, this is an extraordinary power uh, given to an unelected, appointed political official. And it's, it's amazing that Congress would actually cede that much power to the executive branch mm. uh, without uh, w- without any review. And so... Um, the Trump administration, of course, used the the waiver authority more than any other administration, uh, by like 30 times more. Um, but the Biden administration did not have to do that. They said that they were required to spend the funds, but they were not required to waive the laws. Uh, and so that's where we're all kind of baffled. It's like, yeah. you know, what, why did you go down the road of authoritarianism when this is the most anti-American law that's ever existed? So uh, there's additional landscape that was bulldozed in preparation for the wall during the Trump administration. What's the damage that was done as a result of that bulldozing? Has has that been done all all along the border, or just in certain sections? Well, okay, it's in um it's in certain sections. And so um, at this point, I'd like to separate out Texas from New Mexico, Arizona, and California. Right. right. And uh, the reason for this is. Because um, in the three western states, there is a thing called the Roosevelt easement. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1906, President Theodore Roosevelt set aside a 60-foot-wide strip 
along the U.S.-Mexico border, mm-hmm. beginning at the Rio Grande where, uh, in Texas, where Sunland Park, New Mexico, borders Texas and Mexico. Right. And it goes all the way to the Pacific Ocean at San Diego and Tijuana. And along this are the border monuments uh, that were established in between 1890 and 1894 mm-hmm. for the second Mexico Boundary Survey. Mm-hmm. And... Um, there's 269 of these boundary markers. They are like white obelisks, sometimes uh-huh. smaller silver, slightly different shape. How far apart? Numbered. How far apart are they? They're actually not at a fixed distance. They're at uh-huh. line of sight. Oh, and so really? the theory is, this is prior to barbed wire fencing, uh-huh. um, that you could stand at one, look to the left, look to the right, and know that you were on the line by seeing a border monument in the distance. Right. Um, and they're still there. They're a, a really interesting feature of the landscape. So if you're ever down in this area, I would encourage people to go and um, seek out a border monument. Yeah, it's a great piece of history. And um, and just as a side note, several ecologists, notably um, the late uh, Dr. Raymond Turner of University of Arizona uh, and Humphreys, um, they photographed the border monuments a hundred years later. Mm-hmm. to see what kind of change had occurred in the landscape mm-hmm. of vegetation, grasslands. And mm-hmm. so they served as like this good benchmark for um, baseline monitoring of, yeah, of right. vegetation in the, in the land. So just a little side note there. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so the Roosevelt Reservation, um, that, that exists for the use of the federal government. Texas does not have that. So all border wall construction in Texas has to be either by private land sold to the government or uh, the little public land that exists along the border or by condemnation, mm. eminent domain. So that is why there's been uh, less border wall construction in Texas than there has been in the three western states mm. because they didn't have that. So, you know, here in Arizona, we had tons of border wall built because they were allowed to have that strip. The unfortunate aspect of that is that there were many places where there were mountain ranges between where the Roosevelt Reservation crossed, but with private land surrounding it. And so uh, instead of using existing roadways, and uh, they blasted through mountains. And this is just a shame because they blasted through uh, Coronado National Memorial, Montezuma Peak, where the uh, beginning of the Arizona Trail is. This is a National Park Service protected land. And they did the same at Oregon Pipe National Monument and at numerous national wildlife refuges and um, wilderness areas, wilderness study areas. So the damage that was inflicted upon the land by taking this straight line, line of scrimmage approach to the border was simply, um, you know, unacceptable on many levels from an ethical standard and also from a fiscal standard. So, you know, an average rate of, you know, 12 million a mile for border wall construction up to upwards of 40 to 80 million dollars by blasting through these mountains. Mm-hmm. It simply didn't make any sense when there was already a mountain that was, you know, it, impassable to begin with. Right. And even the Chinese knew this with the Great Wall to utilize the landscape. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's just really unfortunate that so much irreversible damage was done in order to build the border wall in mostly our protected federal lands uh, in the West. I'm wondering about local communities along the border, and uh, I'm hearing that they are resisting the the immigration problem. So how do how do these local communities now 
feel about the where the border exists? Well, I'll provide a general statement that um, mm -hmm. one's feelings about the border become stronger the farther they get from it. And uh, ask most people who live in border towns, border communities, they do not like the border wall. Uh -huh. They do not like their city being uh, militarized. Right. Towards the end of the border wall construction, right before the election cycle, this always happens, stunts like this, they put the razor wire all along that. Mm. And so uh, they did this mostly in urban areas, such as San Diego, Tijuana, Calexico, um, El Paso, Nogales. And so now you've got this border wall in addition to all of this coiled razor wire, which is very lethal, um, this concertina wire. Not only is it dangerous to people and wildlife, but you know what does that do to a child growing up in a community where there's you know razor wire and a 30-foot steel wall and helicopters and bright lighting all over? Uh, it's basically they're they're living in a uh, the shadow of a maximum security prison type of infrastructure. When Biden was uh, campaigning and then after he was elected president, he said he'd stop the construction of the wall and and then remove it. Uh, so it was stopped, but I don't believe any parts of it have been taken down. Is that right? No, there's been no removal. And I never heard anything about Biden saying that he would remove the wall. But, oh, okay. but he, he said he said not another foot. Um, oh, okay. You know, read my lips. I, no, that was no new taxes. No, it was not another foot is what, uh, what Biden said. And, you know, uh, we always have to take, you know, the words of politicians with a grain of salt. The recent announcement in Texas of the border wall, uh, that really blew things up because before that, there were some small projects uh, filling the gaps in the border wall. Mm -hmm. And there were certain locations, such as uh, near Yuma, Arizona, where there were some gaps of a thousand feet, five hundred feet, you know, that large. They didn't build border wall across, and these became de facto ports of entry, where buses would pull up on the Mexico side, people would walk across the river, uh, mm -hmm. dry sections of it, mm -hmm. and then the border patrol would have buses waiting for them, and they would process them for asylum. And these are people from all over the, the world, you know, uh, Ethiopia, Ukraine, Venezuela, uh, yeah. you, know, you name it. So what they did is they filled in those gaps. And uh, in the briefings that I was on uh, with DHS in the White House uh, last year, they said that there was not going to be any extension of the border wall, meaning that if it ended in one valley at mm -hmm. You know, 20 miles of it built, they weren't going to keep on extending that, but that there would be some small areas that they would complete some of these gaps. So that's what they did in, in Yuma and a few other places along the border where there were some small you know, 10 and 20 foot wide gaps mm -hmm. that were open. So um, if they would have just stuck with that, I could have said, okay, yeah, Biden has kept his word mm -hmm. on this one. But the Star County announcement was a sharp reversal from that. All right. You told me earlier in the week that you might have some updated information as a result of a congressional hearing. So what happened this week? Well, there was a hearing in the House Natural Resources Committee, and they, um, of course, uh, the majority is pushing for you know, to build more border wall and, uh, you know, cherry picking information in order to, to justify that. So uh, 
there's um, some pushback on this, and we've provided information. A lot of people did in comments, basically saying that um, here's here's the, the elephant in the room. The question is, is um, there's 800 miles of border wall now, and there were um, there were nearly 500 miles less border wall when the Biden administration took over after Trump, but immigration rates have gone up. So here's the question you got to ask yourself. It's like, why keep on building border wall when the immigration rates continue to increase? I mean, it's a pretty strong data point. Mm-hmm. You've got apprehensions. You have physical wall on the ground. Yet that's done nothing. Like if you were just looking at this at a cause and effect equation, you would say, oh, the more border wall you build, the more migration you get. So um this is the unfortunate thing about um, what's going on in government now is that uh, they're not governing by the numbers uh, nor the data. They're just basically governing on, you know, what I call a, um, a tribal drumbeat in, in ideology. So, um, you know, it's very clear that most people arriving, almost everybody now, are coming to ports of entry or these open gaps near a port of entry turning themselves in. And I even asked a Border Patrol agent about this in a rural sector uh, near Lordsburg, uh, New Mexico. I asked him, I said, well, with all these, you know, 500 people you're getting a day apprehending, um, how many are turning themselves in and how many are you apprehending in the mountains and the deserts? Mm-hmm. And before I even had the period on that sentence, he said, oh, 99.5% turn-ins. They're, mm-hmm. Everybody's seeking asylum. And uh, I don't know why we can't just take that at its word and start improving our ports of entry and spending the resources where they can be actually effective versus a very destructive and expensive border wall that does not produce its intended results. So uh, let's talk about wildlife. Uh, How has it been affected by the portions of wall that have been built? Uh, there's no doubt that it has impacted wildlife. Um, uh, in this part of the world, we have very little rainfall and very little surface water. And uh-huh. so uh, a lot of desert wildlife change their movements over space and time in order to acquire resources such as food and water, uh, other places to to live safely. And those uh, places where there might be water um, might be, you know, eight or ten miles apart, but very seasonal. And so here, wildlife that live within a home range of of these water sources, uh, they're the ones that are really being impacted because, you know, for generations, probably millennia of, mm-hmm. of wildlife uh, before them, they followed these routes. And, you know, you know, contrary to what a lot of uh, dogma would lead one to believe on animal instinct, uh, the majority of migration routes are learned from other animals, right. whether it's elephants on the Serengeti or it's, you know, cranes migrating north and south. Um, you know, they, they need to be taught. So um, I, I think uh, what could happen is that we could see regional extirpations of species or at least lower numbers in places because they're being impacted by the inability to move across the landscape at different times when they need to do this. And this coincides with this changing climate. Uh, 
September was the hottest month on the globe ever in all history of, of record keeping. Uh, 2020 was not far behind when they built the majority of the border wall. Mm-hmm. So here we have these unprecedented droughts coupled with high heat. And so at a time when animals need more space to move and survive, now they're getting less in the borderlands area. So that's uh, really sad. And we're trying to study these impacts at um, various locations along the border in Arizona to see how wildlife were impacted. Oh, are there particular species that are most affected as opposed to others? Uh, some, but more than others. Of course, size is going to be a big determinant. You know, things like, you know, rabbits, skunks, you know, they can pass through the four-inch gaps in the border wall. Oh, really? Fairly easily. Yeah, wow. we've, been, we've documented that. Mm. Uh, we've also seen um, even small javelina be able to get through foxes so that there's it's not completely impermeable and there's some places where the gaps are a little bit wider and the wildlife have figured out how to get through it but once you get to the point of the size of a deer the size of a mountain lion size of a jaguar or mexican wolf um yeah there's going to be no permeability for those and um and we've actually got a really strong data point for that and um this is uh, two mexican wolves just about five years apart from each other. Mm-hmm. In 2017, a uh, Mexican gray wolf that was part of the Binational Recovery Program uh, that was um, released in Chihuahua, a place called Campo Verde, um, it made a 600-mile journey in 32 days where it came up through the grasslands of Chihuahua up to Las Cruces, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Spent about two or three days there, um, went down the Rio Grande River all through you know, suburban and farming communities. Mm-hmm. Um, spent a few days on a mountain called Mount Cristo El Rey, which is uh, near the El Paso area. Mm-hmm. And then it returns back to to Campo Verde. And so we have the GPS satellite collar points for that, mm-hmm. uh, four points a day. Mm-hmm. And that that was prior to the border wall being built. It was just a vehicle barrier in that location. So let's fast forward to November of 2021, and another Mexican gray wolf with a collar came out of the Gila wilderness, part of the American part of the Binational Recovery Program, Mm -hmm. made its way down to the Rio Grande River uh, within, I I counted one point that was uh, 100 meters away from the one four years earlier that had... um, Mm -hmm. You know, for some reason, they had converged on the same path and trail. Mm. Uh, so it's remarkable. But that animal went down to the border, and it uh, paced along there for two or three days in the same location that uh, the other wolf did. And it was unable to pass through the border because a border barrier had been built, a big 30-foot border wall yeah. with only four-inch gaps. Yeah. And then he returned back to... Um, to the Gila wilderness. He was actually shot um, and lost one of his legs, but he's still alive. Mm. And now he's going to spend the rest of his days um, in one of the breeding facilities here in the U S but that's a pretty strong data point. When you've got satellite collar information um, that actually show the, the impedance layer is what we call it in GIS and ecological modeling that it encountered this impermeable Mm. barrier and it stopped it, and you can see it. It went back and forth, east-west, along the border for you know, two days. Hmm. So, uh, you know, 
I think that even though that's only you know two wolves, it's one of the very stronger data points we have versus mm-hmm. our camera trap studies where we're we're relying upon you know density estimates and inference and uh, number of occurrences of the camera and uh, you know if we're really going to get at the root of this um, problem. I think it's going to require collaring a lot of uh, animals to uh, see their movement, and uh-huh. especially um, larger, more rare species like the jaguar, mm-hmm. um, which there's been seven documented in the U.S. since 1996. Uh, one just um, came up, a new one just a couple months ago here, uh, possibly eight if it's an, a distinct individual. Um, you know, you're looking at a, a period of 25 years of of eight animals. Um, mm-hmm. You're not going to get lucky enough to get one on a camera trap and also re- repeatedly on different camera traps where you can start to, you know, build the detection rates. No, the, the only way we're going to get through that problem is by having satellite tracking collars, uh, which are, you know, that's pretty routine in today's wildlife uh, research world. So uh, if we could get collars on jaguars, that would help us immensely to understand their movements and uh, potentially see if they are being impacted by the border wall. Because at this point, we simply don't know. You know, we haven't seen that that signal, the actual data point showing that a jaguar came up to the border, encountered a border wall, and then turned around. Have any? Have you uh, discovered that any have changed their movement routes and have uh, have gone around the wall uh, at, at either end? No, we have not. Um, we simply don't, have not had enough time to do yeah. that. Oh, I see. Okay. And and then we also, we weren't able to collect baseline data because here they announce these border walls and then a couple months later they start building them. Uh, with any other sort of federal project, whether it's a highway or a bridge or a rail line mm-hmm. or a mine, um, you would have to do the proper NEPA studies to see, okay, what's going to be impacted? How do we mitigate for those? Are, is there option A, B, C, D that we could uh, use in order to uh, minimize the impacts upon wildlife and the environment? And so, of course, none of that was done because of the waiver authority under the Real ID Act of 2005. So we're kind of operating um, in a less than ideal um, scientific research framework, I would say. Mm-hmm. Who's doing the work? Uh, who's doing the scientific research? Uh, do you have colleagues with Wildlands Network, or are there other organizations you're partnering with to do this research? Yes, um, Wildlands Network partnered with Sky Island Alliance, the uh-huh. out of Tucson, uh-huh. and um, we began a research project at San Bernardino National Wildlife Refuge last June. Uh-huh. And so now we have uh, over a year of, of data. And um, we've got a few um, results from that, and um, we'll, we'll be um, submitting some results for publication here shortly. Um, but but we have an array of cameras along the border, so that we can uh, determine um, species composition, species density, um, if there's a difference between distance from the border wall uh, versus you know if it's one kilometer from the border. 50 meters away, 200, et cetera. Um, in addition to that, we have video cameras that are on some small openings in the wall because they put in some 8 by 11 inch wildlife passages, which 
when they announced that several years ago, everybody thought it was ridiculous. Um, but uh, we actually are seeing um, animals taking advantage of these very small um, holes. Um, of course, not deer and you know, yeah, not right. wolves and things like that. Uh, but at least uh, we are seeing that some amount of permeability does exist in the border wall. And um, we're just on our first year of the study, um, basically reverse engineering it because, you know, the, from a, a research experimental design perspective, the treatment was done, meaning like you're going to uh, study a prescribed burn after they already did the fire. You mm-hmm. usually kind of take some baseline measurements beforehand, mm-hmm. but uh, we didn't have the luxury to be able to do yeah, that. Right, so. Right. Um, we're just doing our best to try to reverse engineer this process. Miles, I hate to tell you, but we are out of time. But I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Maybe we can do it again. So uh, I have a lot more questions to ask. So, so thank you very much. Anytime. Okay, our guest today has been Miles Traphagen, the Borderlands Program Coordinator for Wildlands Network. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.